Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 461st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, remember the Alamo. I do, actually. (laughs) (laughs) This is a location that we both have visited together, and I've also been there previously as well. Although when we visited together, it was at night and it wasn't open, so we could just see the outside of it. Correct. I went back and looked through our list of places that we had done, and I'm like, are you kidding me? We haven't done the Alamo before? I couldn't believe it. You were shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Yeah, I think I mentioned it on a road trip episode, but didn't ever do a specific episode on it. So that's what this episode's going to be about. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Melissa, Abby, and Tyra. Thank you so much for joining us in our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. As spooky weird kids, many of us love critters that are often associated with Halloween, such as owls. But there's one woman in Washington who may not be a fan of this feathered creature any longer. Her frightening experience occurred while out for her daily walk in the woods near her home. A white barred owl silently swooped from the sky and clawed her scalp. She stated that it felt like getting punched in the back of the head by someone wearing rings. So after getting cleaned up, she determined that she would avoid the owl's territory for a bit. However, that feisty feathered fowl found her again, one week later, and accosted her in her own driveway, this time leaving damage even worse than the first encounter. Upon further research, the woman discovered that during nesting or pre-breeding season, the barred owl can become quite aggressive and territorial. The woman read of a female jogger who would actually wear an owl mask on the back of her head while out for a run to avoid such conflicts. Most of us are probably surprised to learn about this type of behavior from such an adorable creature, and getting attacked even once is pretty rare. But getting attacked by an owl twice in one week certainly is odd. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, the greenest state in the land of the free, Raised in the woods so he knew every tree. Killed him a bear when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett. 
king of the wild frontier. And now, this month in history. November on the 10th in 1775, the United States Marine Corps began with the founding of the Continental Marines by the Continental Congress. They were the amphibious infantry of the American colonies and later the United States during the American Revolutionary War. The Corps' mission was to conduct ship-to-ship fighting during naval engagements, provide shipboard security, protecting the captain and his officers, assist with landing forces and discipline enforcement. The Continental Marines totaled 131 officers and around 2,000 enlisted Colonial Marines when they were disbanded in 1783. The organization would then be recreated in 1798, and the United States Marine Corps still marks November 10, 1775 as its birth date. Over the years, the U.S. Marine Corps has been involved in nearly every conflict in the history of the United States. Due to the availability of Marine forces at sea, and their ability to respond quickly and on short notice, the United States Marine Corps has become a principal tool for U.S. foreign policy. The Alamo is stunningly small considering its place in Texan history. The battle that took place at this former mission became a pivotal event in the Texas Revolution and made famous men like Davy Crockett and James Bowie. The complex is incredibly haunted, and the sightings of spirits is what saved it from demolition. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Alamo. Kelly, your first impressions of the Alamo, it is smaller than you expect it to be, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Now, obviously, the entire complex had been much bigger than this. And when you go on tours, whether they're historical or the ghost ones that are in this town, there's different circles that are on the ground at specific locations that mark where the four corners of this complex had once been. So you get an idea of how far it had really stretched out. But the main thing when you think of the Alamo, which is this church or chapel, not very big. And it is smack dab right next to the Banker Hotel, which we have done an episode on. Yes, we have. The Texas Revolution began in October of 1835. This was a rebellion of Texians who were Anglo-American residents of Mexican Texas and Tejanos, who were descendants of Spaniards living in Mexican Texas, against the Mexican government. Mexican Texas was known as Tejas and only incorporated the bottom portion of today's Republic of Texas. And I said that for all of you who live in Texas, because I know it is a republic, not really just a state. Immigrants living in Mexican Texas had once lived in federalized America, and they were used to living with liberty. As the Mexican government centralized power, these immigrants resisted. Some of them also wanted to continue to be slave owners, and that was outlawed by Mexico. Colonists first tried to secede from Mexico with the Fredonian Rebellion in 1826. 
The first skirmish between Texas and Mexico took place on June 26, 1832, and this was the Battle of Velasco. The battle lasted for three days, and the number of casualties is unknown. A convention was held in 1832, where Texas representatives met to discuss what they should do about the Mexican government. General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana claimed he was a Federalist and that he needed the Texians' help to overthrow the centralist Mexican president, Anastasio Bustamante. Santa Ana had lied. The Texians met at Turtle Bayou and signed the Turtle Bayou resolutions, pledging loyalty to Santa Ana, not knowing that he was completely lying to them and wasn't going to actually help them beat back the centralized Mexico. At the convention of 1833, Texas created their own constitution. After the first official battle of the Texas Revolution, Santa Ana pulled together a force to quell the rebellion. Father Antonio Alaveras had founded the original Franciscan mission in San Antonio, San Antonio de Padua Mission, in 1716, and this combined with the San Francisco Solano Mission in 1718 to become the Mission San Antonio de Valero. The monks had a goal of witnessing to the Native Americans in the area. The site for the mission was selected in 1724. The main complex of the Alamo was built by Franciscan monks with the cornerstone being laid in 1744. The mission's religious efforts started to wind down in 1765, and the monks finally abandoned it in 1793. A company of Spanish soldiers then occupied the mission and used the complex as barracks. The Spanish word for cottonwood was Alamo, and since there was a large cottonwood tree sitting outside the gates of the mission, the soldiers started calling their barracks the Alamo. Is Pee-wee's bike still in the basement? Kelly, maybe it is. In January of 1836, the mission had become a storage facility with much of the material being armaments. General Sam Houston was worried that the weapons would fall into the hands of General Santa Ana, and he decided the Alamo should be demolished. He sent a garrison led by James Bowie to do the job. Bowie was born in the late 1790s and made his way in life clearing land and sawing timber in Louisiana. He bought and renovated a sugar plantation and served in the Louisiana State Legislature. Bowie left Louisiana after he killed a man in a duel and he ended up in Texas in 1828. He became a Mexican citizen, but later became interested in the Texas movement to revolt. He became a colonel in the Texas Army and fought valiantly in several battles. Many people know the name Bowie because of the Bowie knife. Kelly, you want to go down yes. a rabbit hole? All right, but this time I'm going first. Okay, should I push you or are you just going to jump? Too late, I already jumped. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole, and I've brought you with me. The Bowie knife was designed by James' brother, Resin, and forged by their neighbor, blacksmith Jesse Clift. This was like a butcher knife with a thin blade and no silver mounts. The special knife became public after the sandbar fight on September 19, 1827. This started as a duel between Samuel Levi Wells and Dr. Thomas Maddox. Neither man hit the other, and so they shook hands and started to leave, when members of Maddox's entourage fired on Wells' group. James Bowie was in Wells' group, and he was shot in the lung. One of the men, Norris Wright, started stabbing Bowie, who grabbed his knife and sunk it into Wright's chest. Everyone who saw this started talking about this legendary knife that Bowie carried. Apparently, it sunk in real nice. The Red, Ugh, grief. The Red River Herald of Nacogdoches reported, All the steel in the country, it seemed, was immediately converted into Bowie knives. All right. Why don't you... Hang on, hang on. I've got this Bowie knife. I've got some rope. I'm going to swing it up there, peg it into the wall, and then we'll climb up. Ooh. Sound good? I never thought of using a Bowie knife like that, but that'll work 
beautifully. When James Bowie arrived at the Alamo, he realized that this was the last line of defense and made a great location to stop Santa Ana's march. There was also a practical reason why Bowie didn't line the Alamo with dynamite and blow it up. He was supposed to remove the armaments before doing that, and he knew his small group of 25 couldn't move two dozen cannons without oxen and carts. He ordered his men to reinforce the former mission. William Barrett Travis was born in 1809 in South Carolina and grew up on a family farm. He went on to become an attorney. He married a woman named Rosanna in 1828, and the two had a son about nine months later. Travis abandoned his wife and son a year later when Rosanna was pregnant with a girl, a child that Travis claimed wasn't his, and he apparently killed a man whom he thought had been with his wife. Travis headed for Texas, where he would become a hero helping Texas fight the revolution as a cavalry officer. He went to the Alamo with 30 men to serve as reinforcements on February 3, 1836. A few days later, frontierman Davy Crockett arrived with a small group of volunteers. David Crockett was born in August of 1786 in the future state of Tennessee. Davy, as everyone called him, spent much of his childhood working off debts for his father. He eventually married twice and had five children and two stepchildren. Davy became a scout for the Tennessee militia in 1813, and he served as a third sergeant during the War of 1812. He served in the Tennessee General Assembly and ran several businesses that were destroyed in a flood. Crockett served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1827 to 1831, but would not be reelected because he opposed President Andrew Jackson's 1830 Indian Removal Act. He managed to get reelected in 1833 and served until 1835. Crockett decided to move to Texas when he heard talk of revolution. His daughter later wrote of his leaving. He was dressed in his hunting suit, wearing a coonskin cap, and carried a fine rifle presented to him by friends in Philadelphia. He seemed very confident the morning he went away that he would soon have us all join him in Texas. Crockett arrived at the Alamo with five men on February 8, 1836. Travis and Bowie jockeyed for command of the Alamo before Santa Ana arrived. The men agreed to share command until Bowie fell ill. Santa Ana started to make his way to San Antonio de Bexar, and that's actually what San Antonio was originally called, in February of 1836, with the goal of finally ending the rebellion. Santa Ana arrived with his army on February 23rd. The Alamo had a small garrison of men, four women, a baby, and five children. The Mexicans raised a blood-red flag signifying no quarter, and Travis ordered a cannon to be fired in response. Bowie wasn't happy with this and ordered Chief Engineer Green B. Jameson to meet with Santa Ana. Santa Ana informed Jameson that there would be no honorable surrender and that they must surrender unconditionally. Travis and Bowie decided to fire the cannon again, and the siege of the Alamo began. So I love how Bowie's like, you know, Travis, you really didn't have to fire that cannon. Why did you do that? We don't want to start something here. And then when Santa Ana's like, uh, we're not letting you surrender, whatever. We're, we've got all these rules that you're going to have to follow. Then Bowie's like, let's fire that cannon again. The Mexicans set up batteries that they inched closer and closer to the Alamo. In the first week of the siege, nobody died. But the Mexicans fired more than 200 cannonballs into the Alamo Plaza. The Texians fired as many, reusing many of the Mexican cannonballs. I love that. You can just see them running out there and going, grab that one quick. Hey, man, be industrial. I know. And I can't believe that, you know, when you fire 200 cannonballs at something, that they didn't just destroy the place completely and that the cannonballs were reusable. The Texians started to lose steam as they had to conserve firepower and Bowie fell ill. 
Two Mexicans were the first to die. Then six more were killed and four others were wounded, while no Texians died. Unfortunately, that would not remain the case. One of the greatest works ever penned about American patriotism would be written by Colonel Travis on February 24th. This was the man who had unsheathed a sword and drawn a line on the ground before his battle-weary men and declared, those prepared to give their lives in freedom's cause, come over to me. And when you visit the Alamo, that line, they have like a metal bar kind of plate thing that's in the ground so you can see legend, exactly the legendary line yeah. where he put that in. Now, some people say he never actually did that, but I could see him doing this. The letter reads, To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism and everything dear to the American character, to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. Lieutenant Colonel William Barrett Travis. P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 80 or 90 bushels and got into the walls 20 or 30 head of beeves. Reinforcements were sent, but they only went a mile before turning around. The Alamo was on its own. The Mexicans had received reinforcements. By March 3rd, there were 3,100 Mexicans outside of the Alamo. On the evening of March 4th, Bowie's cousin-in-law, Juana Navarro Alsbury, went to Santa Ana to negotiate a surrender. But this was denied as Santa Ana saw no glory in a bloodless victory. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Kelly, the holidays are coming. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh, this year has flown by. I think for all of us, we want to give a gift to our loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship that we share with them. And we have a great suggestion for everybody, StoryWorth. This has been an amazing thing. I'm holding right here in my hand a book that was compiled by StoryWorth. We gave this gift to my mother over a year ago. This is going to be a wonderful keepsake, not only for just myself and my sister, but also for the grandkids. And you know, Kelly, I always say, I wish I'd gotten one of these for my grandmother. And I know when your mom just recently passed away, that's one of the things that we thought. Yeah, I really wish that I had had that opportunity to have my mom compile her memories into that sort of keepsake. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It's a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. How this works is every week, StoryWorth emails whoever you've given this gift to a thought-provoking question. Either you can make up the question or they have some pre-designed questions as well. And a lot of these questions are ones that you never would have thought to ask. Some of the questions my mom answered, what were your friends like in high school? What is one of your fondest childhood memories? What is one of your favorite memories of your mother? Which goes back to my grandmother. What was your dream car? What's one of the craziest things that's ever happened to you? 
After one year, StoryWorth will compile all the answers that the person that you've given this gift to together, and they'll put it together into a beautiful keepsake book, like I said, that I'm holding right here. And reading the weekly stories, because they will email you the answers ahead of time so that you could see what your mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather, or whoever you've given this to, what they've answered to it. So it helps keep you connected with your loved ones. With StoryWorth, you're giving those you love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to StoryWorth.com slash HistoryGhostBump and save $10 on your first purchase. That's StoryWorth.com slash HistoryGhostBump to save 10 bucks on your first purchase. On the evening of March 5th, Santa Ana stopped the bombardment of the Alamo to lull the Texians into a sense of peace. At 5.30 a.m. on March 6th, the Mexicans attacked, killing three Texian sentinels outside the walls. The buglers started playing and the soldiers started cheering, Viva Santa Ana! The Texians awoke, sending the civilians to the chapel for protection. The Texians were out of canister shot, so they stuffed the cannons with chopped up horseshoes, door hinges, nails, and other pieces of metal. This was very effective, and some of the new Mexican recruits killed their fellows with friendly fire. Travis was one of the first Texians to die. His men kept the Mexicans from climbing the walls, and they withdrew and prepared for a second attack, which was also repulsed. A third attack wasn't going well either, and Santa Ana had to send in his reinforcements. So these Texians at the Alamo are really putting up a hell of a fight. At this point, the Mexicans realized that they could scale the North Wall. The Mexican army swarmed up the walls, killing the gunners on the south end and took control of the 18-pounder cannon. The east wall had also been penetrated. The Texians fell back to the barracks and the chapel. Some of the Texians headed out for the prairie but were killed. Crockett and his men were attempting to hold the low wall in front of the chapel and had to use their guns as clubs because they had no time to reload. Crockett would die there. All the Texians were forced back to the chapel as the Alamo fell under the control of the Mexican army. They raised their flag above the complex. The cannons were turned on the Texians and doors were blown open and the Mexicans rushed in to do hand-to-hand combat. James Bowie died in a sickbed, either fighting off the Mexicans or committing suicide. There is no accurate account, but we'd like to believe he was brandishing his famous knife and went down with a bit of a fight, whatever fight a sick man could give. The only people left alive at this point were in the chapel, 11 men and the women and children. The Mexicans blasted open the door and bayoneted all the men. One of the men made a valiant effort to try to torch the gunpowder, but he fell dead before he could. The blast would have killed the women and children, so that was a good thing. One of the male children was killed when he was mistaken as an adult. Twenty women and children survived, as did Travis's enslaved man named Joe. The Battle of the Alamo was over. But the Mexican soldiers kept firing into the dead bodies. Casualties are hard to pin down. The Mexicans lost more men by far. Estimates range from 400 to 1,600 of the Mexicans died, and around 250 Texians died. The Mexicans stacked and burned the dead Texians, except for Giorgio Esparza, whose brother was in Santa Ana's army, and he requested to give his brother a Christian burial. Not only have these men given a valiant effort and have become basically heroes for this country, and for Texas especially, But you're not going to even bury them properly? They just stacked them like cordwood and put them on fire. Horrible. Yeah. The ashes of the Texians were later collected and put in a joint coffin and buried in an unknown location near the Alamo. 
There's a lot of places that say their ashes are in this. There's, I think, a church there in San Antonio that has a coffin that sits up on a thing and it says that it has ashes in there. But I don't know that that's true. There's no proof for that. General Santa Ana wanted to burn more than just the bodies. He wanted to burn down the complex. This wasn't going to become a martyr shrine under his watch. He tasked General Andrade with the mission. Andrade gathered a group of his men and sent them off, but they returned shortly thereafter, white as ghosts and shaken. They told their general that they didn't burn down the Alamo because when they arrived, they found six Diablos with flaming swords blocking the entrance. The men had run in fear. Some of the men told Andrade that they thought the entities were spirits of Franciscan monks. Others claimed they were the ghosts of the defenders of the Alamo. Andrade scoffed at such nonsense. Not only did he not believe the story, but he was under pressure from Santa Ana to burn the place. So he gathered a few men who had not gone before, and he led them to the Alamo to get the job done himself. As Andrade expected, there were no spirits blocking the entrance when they arrived. He decided they would burn the longhouse barracks first. Andrade directed his men to start stacking wood and other flammable material. The activity was brought to a halt when a spirit appeared on top of the barracks with balls of fire in his hands. The light from the fire was blinding, and the spirit held its hands out. The men fell to their knees and covered their eyes. Andrade was no longer scoffing as he, too, fell to the ground. He ordered his men to retreat, and they rode out of San Antonio. He never returned, and neither did Santa Ana, so the Alamo sat abandoned. So, of course, as a skeptic, we would say, wow, nice legendary story, but uh aha, ha, ha. No, there's no way. (laughs) But when you think about it, clearly the kind of general that Santa Ana was, and he was also president of Mexico, this is a guy who would want this place to, to go down. He does not want this to stand. So what could possibly happen that would make one group of soldiers decide we're not doing it, and then probably somebody who he considered to be his right-hand man takes his own group of men, and they're like, no way. And he's like, I'm never going back there. They saw something. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I don't know what it was, but they saw something, and it was two groups of them that saw it. And these aren't just like a little mystical ghost that pops up and goes, boo. (laughs) It's not Casper. (laughs) No, I mean, they almost sound angelic with fiery swords. Right. This other thing that jumps up on top of the barracks and has these fireballs in his hands. I mean, it sounds like out of a comic book. You know, one of those superheroes like I loved Firestorm from DC Comics. So I'm like, it's like he jumped up on top of the thing and was like, you ain't taking the Alamo. But that's why they say it seems like the haunting that is going on here saved the complex. Texas was annexed into the United States, and the Army decided to turn the Alamo into a barracks in 1846. In 1871, it was decided to demolish parts of the Alamo, including the church. This demolition didn't take place because the citizens wanted to keep the complex and because of all the stories of apparitions around the Alamo. Superstition made people think that if they destroyed the complex, they'd bring bad luck. So the complex was turned into a police headquarters and jail. A wholesale grocery store used the complex for a while. That's awfully weird. That's (laughs) random. In 1891, the Daughters of the Republic of Texas decided that they would preserve the Alamo. Two members, Adina Amelia de Zavala and Clara Driscoll, petitioned the state legislature in 1905 to purchase the Alamo and give the DRT, which is the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, conservatorship. The women stopped working together after that because they had different visions. 
Dezavala wanted this to go back to the mission look, while Driscoll wanted to make the complex look much as it does today. The women formed different factions and fought over control, with Driscoll obviously winning. But not before Dezavala barricaded herself in the church for three days. Oh my. They both felt very strongly about this property. Clearly. I mean, at least they loved it that much that they wanted to really invest themselves into it. Well, this is true. I've never heard of somebody barricading themselves inside of a historic property that you want to save because you want it done your way. And the DRT would hold on to that control until 2015, when Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush officially moved control of the Alamo to the Texas General Land Office. The Alamo was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site on July 5, 2015. Today, the Alamo is one of the most popular historic sites in the country, with over 4 million visitors a year. And it's a great city. It sure is. We loved it. We were there for the holidays as we were driving through and spent a night in San Antonio, and it was just beautiful. And the cool thing for us is that we were staying in a hotel that was right on the Riverwalk, and you could look out our window down onto the Riverwalk. It was Christmas, so they had all the lights and the trees. It was just magical. Yeah, huge, mature trees just draped with all sorts of lights. Yeah, gorgeous. So cool. If for nothing else, you need to go to San Antonio just to see the Riverwalk. And then, of course, there's a ton of haunted locations here. Almost all of the hotels that are around this complex are haunted. Wonder why? <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the ghosts that are here date back to the Alamo. And through all those years, ghost sightings continued. The San Antonio Express published a series of stories in the 1890s detailing some of these stories. Police reported that there were ghosts that marched along the roof of the police station, and prisoners complained of ghostly moaning coming from the corridors of their cells. Shadow figures were often seen in the buildings. Many of the stories came from guests staying at the Manger Hotel, which is right next to the Alamo. They swore that they saw the spirits of an army marching back and forth in front of the Alamo and that spirit guards stood watch at night. Some spirits would look alive until they walked through the walls of the Alamo. The activity got to be too much for the police and they moved the jail because no one wanted to work certain shifts. There are more than just the spirits of the Alamo defenders seen here, though. The mission was originally built over what had once been the cemetery for San Antonio. Nearly a thousand people have been buried on this land, and to this day, skulls and bones are sometimes dug up when construction work is being done. It is believed that the ghost of a little blonde-haired boy that is seen here probably is from a boy buried in the cemetery. But others wonder if perhaps he was evacuated during the siege, and his spirit returns here because one or both of his parents didn't survive. He is often seen in an upstairs window of the gift shop, and the weird thing is that there's no way to climb up to that window, and there's no ledge to stand on so that he could look out the window. February is his favorite month to make appearances. Yeah, so I don't know if somebody's gone up there before and looked and been like, if he's a little kid, he can't look out that window. Park rangers have claimed to see the spirit of Davy Crockett holding a flintlock rifle and wearing buckskin clothing and a coonskin cap. He's not the only famous ghost here. Strangely, the spirit of John Wayne started making appearances after his death in 1979. So strange. Yeah, When I read this and I read it in several places, I was like, John Wayne, what? The reason may be because he directed and produced the 1960 film, The Alamo. It was a very personal project for him, and he visited the Alamo for research. And a three-quarter scale replica of the Alamo was built over a two-year period. Now, I've heard that that movie doesn't follow the history very well. I don't know if it was like redone through the directing or the editing or something because the two historians that they used on it for 
information and stuff wanted their names taken out of the credits. Oh, wow. So clearly they didn't like the history that was presented. The spirit of a Mexican soldier is also reputedly at the Alamo. He's seen walking along the outer walls with his chin tilted down, his hands clasped behind his back, and shaking his head looking sad. The ghost is believed to belong to Santa Ana's commander, General Manuel Fernandez de Castrillon. Castrillon also refused to execute six Texians brought to him after the firefight. This enraged Santa Ana, who killed the Texians himself and almost killed Castrillon. He was killed later at the Battle of San Jacinto. A residual paranormal phenomenon features a father and son duo. They are sighted standing on a rooftop just after sunrise, and the man wraps his arms around the child and then leaps from the parapet to the ground below and disappears. It is believed that General Andrade witnessed the actual event as he wrote that he and some other Mexican soldiers were horrified to see a tall, thin man with a small child in his arms leap to the ground from the parapet at the rear of the Alamo Church. A cowboy dressed in a black duster and cowboy hat and dripping wet is seen in the garden, and people believe this could be one of 22 dispatch riders that William Travis sent out to get reinforcements. Another apparition is seen sticking his head and shoulders out of the large rectangular window over the double doors at the front of the church. He looks around and then disappears. Visitors and employees have claimed to hear phantom footsteps, disembodied whispers and voices, and to feel very melancholy, especially in the chapel. Visiting the Alamo is very moving. There's a heavy spiritual energy here that reflects the deadly siege that took place. This is also a shrine to heroes. Is the Alamo haunted? That is for you to decide. I'd love to investigate there at some point. Heck yeah. I wish we had like some of the stuff that we have now and our little ghost apps and stuff on the phone just to walk around the outside of it and see what we got. I know. Same. I've done two ghost tours there, both with the same company, Grim Sisters. They're excellent. So if you're going to be going to San Antonio, definitely look them up for a ghost tour. Both tour guides that I've had have been great. I want you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Kelly, most of our listeners know that I clean houses for my real job. And the one day, it was uh, two weeks ago, I was at one of my client's houses and he knows that I do this podcast. He's listened to it every so often. And he asked me, he's an atheist, but he asks me questions about ghosts all the time. So I've almost brought him out of his uh, atheism, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he mentioned to me that he had a neighbor across the street that had told him that she had been touched by a ghost in the kitchen. So he was like, would you like to talk to her? And I said, well, heck yeah, I would. I'd love to. (laughs) Of course. So he went over and asked her if it'd be okay. And she was thrilled to have me come over. So after I got done with his house, I went across the street. And this is actually a house that I had cleaned out for probably... Oh, about six, six or seven months. And then the woman who had lived there had gotten Alzheimer's. So her family had to move her out of there into another facility. And so then I lost that house. So I was familiar with the house, but not these new people that had moved into it. And I told my client, Phil, that I had been touched by a ghost. So I kind of knew what that was like. And that's why I wanted to talk to her, too, to see what her experience had been. Apparently, about 15 years ago, her husband had passed away. It was pretty sudden. He was just in his 50s and had one of those widowmakers. And she'd been doing a lot of moving ever since that. And she'd gotten remarried and she and her husband found this house here in Florida and they decided to settle down. This is where we're going to be. So they've been there for about a year or a year and a half. And she thinks that possibly she was visited by her dead husband who may have been looking for her and couldn't find her because she keeps moving around. And finally, now that she's settled, maybe he had found her. 
this is a big open house plan. So you have the kitchen that's here at the front of the house. There's a big long countertop that's kind of high so you can look over it. And then there's the sitting room that's got the TV and all that other stuff, the great room. And she has a little Yorkie, Yorkshire Terrier. Very cute little thing. It came up to me right away and I was just petting it like crazy because I love those little dogs. She was standing at the kitchen sink washing something and she said clear as day she could feel a hand that came down and touched her shoulder. And she said it kind of freaked her out a little bit because she's like, what is touching me? Because I am home alone. The little Yorkie is outside of the kitchen and there's just a small opening from where this long countertop is. And then there's like a garage door there. He comes around that and he starts growling and she goes, he doesn't ever do that. And he was growling like that deep guttural growling. And so she goes, I was a little freaked out about it. And then all of a sudden this pressure that she had on her shoulder had gone away. But she said she could not get her dog to come into the kitchen for like a week and a half. Wow. Because that's where he was supposed to be eating. She had to keep taking his food out to him somewhere else because he would not come into that kitchen. She goes, now he comes in, but... Took a while. Yeah. So I told her about my experience and I asked her, what did it feel like? Did it feel like electrical in any way? And she goes, definitely. She said it definitely felt as if she had a real hand touching her because she said, I could feel the pressure that you would feel with a hand touching your shoulder. But she said it was definitely kind of electrical and everything. And she goes... It freaked her out enough that she pointed over and underneath the TV, she had a Bible open. And she said, I saged the house. And <laughs> I asked a friend of mine who has a little bit of psychic abilities what I should do. And she just said, you know, why don't you open up a Bible and just leave it open? Interesting. So I just visited with her for a while and let her know that I didn't think it was anything serious. I said, it doesn't feel heavy to me in here. I didn't tell her I'm as psychic as a stone, but... <laughs> You're much more sensitive than you give yourself credit for. But I said, it sounds like you did the right thing with saging. And I said, and just always remember it's your house. so You can tell him whatever you want. And I said, and if it was your husband, maybe it was kind of nice that he came by and was just putting his hand on your shoulder to let you know that he was there. And your dog might have just been freaked out because he didn't expect anybody to be there. And maybe he could see him and was like, who's a stranger? Because it would be a stranger to him. Sure. So, but it was just fun to have this conversation with this lady across the street. And so every time I'm there, she's like waving at me like, oh, there's that other ghost girl. <laughs> Love it. And then Bill, who is in the Spooktacular crew, I think a lot of you know him. He sent us an experience that he'd had. I was six, lived on a street, Bright Street in Pearl, Mississippi. I'm in Jackson now. There were two dreams where I'd walk to the kitchen and look out a window and see what I now know to be a hybrid alien. I would be paralyzed with fear. Later that summer, I was staying at my grandparents for a month. The way it happened was I woke with four hybrids holding me down. One by my legs, two up top at my chest, and a fourth that drew my attention to him. A long needle, looks like a modern-day turkey injector needle setup, began to be driven into my upper center chest. It hurt. From time to time, I still feel it. The chest hair, when it did come out as I aged, was gray. Girlfriends would comment on it. The pain was incredible. I was crying and looking around the room. It was brightly lit and seemed to be white. I believe I saw my older brother being done the same way. They, he put in quotation marks, put the image of Robin from Batman and Robin in my mind. I think it was to comfort me, as I couldn't stand to see him, my brother, suffer. Can't stand to see anyone suffer. Some movies are impossible to watch. Weeks passed and I walk into my room and I share with my brother back at home. He's drawing their faces. I freeze and point and say, what are those? He says demons and puts the drawings away and would never let me see them. We never spoke of it. Wow. 
first of all, thanks for sharing that, Bill. And what is interesting, I said to him about this, is that he doesn't think that they had ever had any other kind of experience like that. Generally, when you have a visitation, you start to have multiple ones. So it was just like a one-time deal. Right. And it sounds to me like they were taken somewhere. Yeah, seems like it. Based on what he said. And then what's really weird is you think, maybe I just dreamed it and I didn't really get this needle in me. But then it's like, I can feel still kind of a scar there on my chest. And then to have your chest hair come in gray. Right. And hair can do that when you have trauma. My dad actually, before he went gray, um, had a circular spot on his head where he, <laughs> this sounds terrible that I'm laughing, but his mom dropped him. Oh my God, <laughs> dropped him he, on his head. So now he had a gray spot his head. There. Yeah. So he had jet black hair, but this little circle of white on his head where he had whacked it. But wow, how creepy to go through that. And it always makes me wonder about these because you hear that they have these stories where they communicate without actually speaking, but put things in your mind. And it's like, what are these things that can communicate in your mind that way that they would put right. like that image of Robin in his head? And clearly they knew it would be traumatizing to him that they put a nice image in his head. Yeah, it's so odd. So why are you doing it? Leave us alone. <laughs> Want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Buglers. <laughs> the buglers. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job, it's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.